Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis. Matt Risby is missing this week. He went into a mysterious phone booth and hasn't been seen since, but I'm sure everything's fine. He's he's not working in some sort of underground matrimonial facility. So to help me out this week, I'm joined by returning guest, Jack Roden. Hi Jack, how's it going? Hello Edwin, I'm doing fine. Great. So this week we're going to be talking about the League of Gentlemen for people who are unfamiliar with the show the british classic sitcom league of gentlemen which recently celebrated its 20th anniversary and aired with three specials which aired over the christmas period the league of gentlemen is a comedy troupe consisting of reese shearsmith steve pemberton mark gatis and jeremy dyson which formed in the early 90s did a lot of live performances you know sketches where they played all these grotesque exaggerated characters which then won the Perrier Award at the Edinburgh Fringe in 1997, migrated to radio, as is the custom of British comedy, before becoming a TV show in 1999, which aired for three series and a movie. And as I said, came back just this past Christmas for three specials, which demonstrated that the team really haven't lost a step. Obviously, they've all been working pretty consistently since then in a variety of projects, but... It was kind of nice, in inverted commas, to revisit the horrific <laughs> world, yet charming world of Royston Vasey, their northern town populated by mass murderers, incestuous liaisons, unlucky vets, uh, <laughs> and you know, toad enthusiasts. Yeah, obsessive toad collectors, uh, wife kidnappers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of you know your, your typical fare. Uh, and uh, you, Jack, said that you wanted to come on to talk about the revival for the, the 20th anniversary. And yeah. uh, that, to me, sounded like a great idea because uh, I loved The League of Gentlemen when it was originally on. I really loved the three specials that they came back with. And I've been a huge fan of, of those guys' work for the entire time. To kind of uh, get us into this discussion, what was your first uh, experience or exposure to the work of The League of Gentlemen? Well, I, I can't claim um, I can't claim to go as far back as the Edinburgh Fringe or indeed uh, the Radio Four uh, comedy show. Mm. Um, so my first experience was uh, the moment basically it came on TV, yeah, uh, on uh, BBC Two because I was already tuned into the quality output that BBC Two were putting on at that time, um, and in particular been turned onto Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Mm-hmm. So my kind of, uh, my enthusiasm for horror with a bit of, well, light-hearted horror, I suppose, was already was already there. And then this came along, which was a, a lot more closer to home, should we say. Yeah. Setting. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I I also started with the, the TV show. I remember distinctly watching it for the for the first time when it first aired because partly because of the Buffy thing as well for me but also because I that was during a time when I just obsessively watched pretty much every British sitcom that aired I because partly because there was a lot of good stuff on at that time you know Space started the same year Mm. Black Book started the same year there was a really great run of of really funny and smart British sitcoms that all debuted The Office as well the same year which 
I, yeah. I, I sometimes am loathe to mention because of Ricky Gervais's subsequent work and persona, <laughs> but uh, you can't fault how great that first two series of The Office are and, and the special specials. But uh, I also, like, as a teenager, harbored dreams of writing sketch comedy and, and sitcoms and things like that. So I think I justified to myself watching all of these these shows because... Uh, you know, I thought, oh, this is this is uh, experience, this is research. <laughs> but really, it was just I wanted to watch really funny stuff, a lot of really funny stuff. And and the League of Gentlemen really distinguished itself, even amongst you know a fairly uh, illustrious crop of shows. Yeah, uh, well, I was I was um, you've got it was I suppose prefaced by the Fast Show. You've got Smack mm-hmm. the Pony, yes, in that period. But also um, to kind of um, to thematically link to some of the things I wanted to say about. Why it struck a chord with me in its northern setting, you also have mm. Phoenix Nights. Yes, yeah. Oh, yeah. Which is also populated by um, some colourful, should we say, colourful and quite sad northern characters at times. Yeah, yeah, you you could imagine a lot of the characters in Phoenix Nights with a slight twist just being people in the League of Gentlemen. And there is at least one crossover actor between the two because the guy who plays the... Yeah, he he crops up as uh, one of the members of Creme Brulee. I think yes. it's I think it's the guy. Isn't he the guy who does like the radio show on it's... morning show on BBC Ted Robbins or something? Ted Roberts. Oh, is it? I think okay. it's the same guy. Toby. No, it's a different guy. They just look exactly the same. They both have a kind okay. of. They're both kind of uh, larger, gruff Northern men. Uh, so they. All... <laughs> I thought for a minute you were talking about Rayvon. Um... No, not Rayvon. No. Uh... <laughs> uh, no, you, you're right. Actually, the guy who cons uh, Les McQueen out mm. of. His uh, money, yeah, is does feature in Phoenix Nights. I think isn't he in a band or something? No, like I know who he is. He is the rival of of Peter Kay's character. It's He's, Den Perry. Den Perry. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, uh, the, the patron of a banana lounge. Banana yes. Grove. Banana Grove. Yeah, yeah. Uh, playing <laughs> not dissimilar characters of kind of really. Northern rip-off merchant. Yeah, but also have that give off that vibe of just being like, if they don't rip you off, they're probably <laughs> going to be really nice to you. <laughs> <laughs> what What would you... I think uh, we mentioned it a few times that kind of a, a northernness, I think, is one of the one of the defining characteristics of the League of Gentlemen. All, mm. I think, of them are all from the north and uh, Gatiss, Shearsmith uh, and Pemberton all met at Breton College, uh, yeah. now part of the University of Leeds. And uh, Jeremy Dyson went to the university in Leeds, and that that for me, I think, is one of the things that's really very distinctive about it. Because I think there is a tendency for a lot of British comedy to be very London-centric. Obviously, there's also a long tradition of like Cambridge and Oxford grads being part of the 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 hip comedy scene. So I think one of the things that really stood out for me it was that it, it was a show that was very distinctly northern in its both in its setting and i think also in its just general approach yeah i think that, that probably hit a chord with me probably subconsciously when i was young mm-hmm. but yeah pondering it in in the years since it's i absolutely love blackadder yeah but it's yeah it's so obviously not from a kind of footlights background mm. but it's it's quite an interesting it's also yeah it's it's also worth pondering i suppose 20 years on why there isn't, I suppose, more of that coming through, but that's maybe for a slightly later discussion. Yeah, because 
I I watched the first two series to kind of prepare for this to remind myself because and also just because I, I thought it would be really fun and it was <laughs> because because that that those first two series are especially just great and really they're firing on all cylinders in those but in watching it I, I would also be talking about the show to people at work mm. and someone asked me like oh you know is there you know are there any shows that have made since then that really reference it and I was like not really I mean only the shows that the league have gone that on they've to actually make... done themselves yeah. yeah like you can say like the only shows that really feel like natural descendants of the league of gentlemen are psycho villain inside number nine yeah uh, uh and yeah it is very weird to think that those things that there haven't been a lot of shows that have really tried to ape that tone or aesthetic but i guess at the same time that that show is so distinctive that it would be hard for anyone to do something even remotely like it without the comparison like you couldn't just take one tiny aspect of it and and kind of run with it like all of those pieces kind of need to fit together at the same time the the, the kind of the deadpan horror of it all the, yeah. the the mix of of the terrifying and the banal and that kind also a, a kind of a boardiness that i think is uh for me feels distinctly something of like the north and you know kind of the midlands to a lesser extent yeah there's a there's a a complete lack of restraint mm. particularly in the like in the third series i think it's a it is a good series but they are they're trying to quite consciously do something a bit cleverer yes yeah and in but in the first two series you just feel like it's i don't know they just they don't really care what anybody thinks of it we're going to make the darkest jokes that we've ever thought of in our 10 years at university and <laughs> practicing this on the stage we're just going to throw it out there and see what happens it's just yeah i think that's partially why it stands up so well mm. it's completely unrestrained darkness <laughs> yeah and i think that having a, a few passes at a lot of that material through doing it on stage and the radio show i think also ha- helped it feel so distinctive from the off like mm the way that it mixes sketch and sitcom where each individual scene really is like a self-contained little sketch itself but over time they kind of accumulate details and some of them you know end up with with payoffs but you can watch any individual scene of that and you'll get some sort of really great joke out of it and i think the fact that a lot of those characters they've been honing for years and years really comes through in the sense that even from the very first episode all of those characters feel lived in even though they're they're kind of grotesque caricatures in many many respects some uh, characters like edward and Tubbs from the first scene that you see them like that (laughs) there's no sense that like oh we're working some things out it's like no these are the characters we've been playing for years and we know exactly how to play them yeah, they just make they. You just understand what they are within about a second of them opening their mouths, mm. and you also very quickly get a sense of you know their influences because the the idea of like a hiker going into a local shop and being <laughs> menaced and then killed kind of points to a whole tradition of like British folk horror, uh, which comes back at the end of the episode where they kill the Scottish policeman played by Mark Gassis, who yes. is, it's very, very obviously like a homage to the Wicker Man. Yeah. Uh, because there's no point in him being Scottish other than that. Um, <laughs> a, 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 and 
the way in which they blend all of their influences so well, I think, is uh, a sign of just how confident they were. And it's par- partly it's probably the confidence of, you know, being in their, their early 20s and just wanting to take on the world, or late 20s rather, and wanting to take on the world and being given this platform. But I think part of it is just, you know, the experience of doing this stuff for, for so long. I was thinking as well of, uh, of a way to expose uh, Americans to it would be, be, is it the American Werewolf in London? Yes, yeah. The, uh, the visit out to the, uh, the small town, well, the village. Mm-hmm. Uh, the creepy village is clearly, I feel like, some kind of homage to that in general. Yeah, and, you know, going into a pub called The Slaughtered Lamb, which yeah. is the kind, of, the kind of detail that you also see cropping up in the show a lot. It's a, sh- it's a show that I think prizes visual gags more mm. than I think a lot of sit- of sitcoms in general like a, a, a large part of what makes the show so good is uh, Steve Bendelak's direction he directed like all of the sh- all of the show including the, the movie and the revival and apart from the bits that they filmed in front of a live audience which do feel weird in our place at this point mm. when you consider how much of the work they've done since then hasn't involved a live audience you really do get a sense that, oh, this was a show that was shot and edited and written with a very distinct aesthetic in mind and yeah. a, a very clear vibe that it was going for. Yeah, and the panning, like, the panning shots for, to open each episode through mm. town, is it, like, just giving very small kind of silent, silent comedic sketches in and of themselves to start every episode was always a, a particular favourite of mine. The, uh, the butcher throwing out the bucket of blood onto, <laughs> yeah. as somebody walks past <laughs> onto the street. Yeah, the uh, opening up the portal loo and it just being full of water. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and in the, the revival series where you have the shops that have all closed down in the interim, presumably because of the the fact that Royston Vasey has become even more kind of <laughs> decrepit and forgotten over the 20 years are things like bra shop gone bust um <laughs> soup shop is stock reduced stock reduced and the tire shop is prices slashed you know there are these just <laughs> and in the i think in the first maybe not the first episode but certainly in the first series you know there's a hearst going by and when it drives past you see that on the side of the coffin arranged in beautiful flowers is just the word bastard <laughs> <laughs> But there's a like I going back to the um, the enthusiasm for it as a as effective as a teenager, I suppose it's there's an absolute like there's a real uh, there's a real empathy and love of I don't know of the people, not of the community, because obviously it's absolutely terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but uh, but just their their clear love of trying to show people's everyday banal existence. Yeah. And I suppose the horror of everyday life is what they continue to go at. Like the roundabout zoo, <laughs> which is the lamest zoo in human history. And yet you can't look at it without just going, oh, well, at least they're trying. Mm. Yeah, I think you really get that in the character of Jeff, played by Rishi oh, Smith, yeah. who is just the embodiment of frustrated, middle-aged English uh, 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 attempts at like bonhomie like he's <laughs> constantly trying to get jo- tell jokes he's constantly trying to endear himself to people and he's just so terrible at it and then obviously it always ends up with him saying you know I've got this gun and then, you like, know? <laughs> I'm 
pulling a gun on people. Um, but that that character, the way Shearsmith plays that character, there is a surprising amount of of depth to it that you you wouldn't necessarily expect from a character that initially when you initially see him exists to bully his friends into trying to tell yeah. a single uh, not especially good joke. No. <laughs> In the Death by Mau Mau sketch, which, Death by we, Mau Mau. which was a, a a sketch that I remembered very fondly, like it's one I always think of, but for some reason I'd forgotten that it originated in the League of Gentlemen because it doesn't really tie into anything. It's just a really expertly crafted sketch of you know three guys having dinner, one of whom is trying to coerce the one of the others to kind of tell this joke and getting so angry at the other person <laughs> for forgetting details and kind of messing up and like saying the punchline first uh, and it all feels very kind of keenly observed yeah the, the kind of the i suppose they, they took what is i suppose quite a a common theme of british comedy the kind of a quiet desperation mm-hmm. and just decided well, what happens if the next scene is exploding into absolute horror? Yeah. And they just did that with character after character. I I, I always go back to Pop mm-hmm. and his sons. Yeah. And the um, the incredible, like, Reservoir Dogs-esque panning around them as they tell him uh, the story of some kids stealing the nine Maverick bars <laughs> from his local shop. And he loses it so much that the scene ends with him saying, I only have one son. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I thought, uh, I was surprised by how much pop there was in the revival series. Not that he was like a, ever like a particularly bad character, but it didn't seem like one they would focus on. But I really liked where they ended up with that, where it all goes like in for a, for a brief moment, it becomes an homage to like the 1930s adventure movie, yeah. The Thief of Baghdad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which I was not expecting it to go and then obviously it being revealed uh, at the moment that you think this seems a bit much even for the League of Gentlemen revealing it's just like yeah. a violent fantasy and he's just been brutally stabbed to death <laughs> <laughs> but uh, never has a man deserved it more yeah part. yeah every every scene of him in the original series just reveals him to be an even more grotesque individual even though in the kind of the great spectrum of the grotesques in the League of Gentlemen. Like physically, he's not that weird no. looking. He's just like a a, a large, vaguely Greek man. <laughs> um, but that one where he's well, again, why it's still I suppose why it still seems so fresh and relevant when he's showing that young couple around oh, the flat God. he's renting out to them, mm-hmm. and you think, well, this is you know this is nineteen ninety nine, but. That could be 2018. Mm. Nothing like there could be no change there. The kind of the absolutely terrifying exploitative landlord. Yeah. Um, only talking to the man mm-hmm. um, and effectively using his like masculinity to sell him the worst flat in human history. And then creeping on the girlfriend yeah. and then watching him on CCTV. Yeah. And it just gets darker and darker and darker. <laughs> Yeah, and like, yeah, it's particularly like saying that, you know, men, uh, women love men who make decisions and things like yeah. that. I think, yeah, this is just, like I said, like like with the, the Jeff thing, you know, it's just a very sharply observed thing of human nature <laughs> that, that they push to a cartoonish extreme, but yeah. not necessarily where it's always funny, just to a, 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 an extent that leaves you feeling a little gross. Yes. <laughs> 
Um, yes. Which I think is also the case of a character like Hair Lip, who is <laughs> like, on the one level, he's just like a guy, a, a German character who. In, it, it, I just realised that Steve Pemberton plays a lot of the the, the the most kind of horrifying characters. Yeah, I was trying to work out if I was a type. Yeah, three of them. But Steve Pemberton does tend to do the most grotesque ones. Um, but yeah, like Hair Lips, just a German teacher who says a lot of double entendres, but then it very quickly becomes apparent, oh no, he's just a pedophile. Yeah. <laughs> and his plot line in the second series is all about how he's in love with this young boy called Justin. Justin. And, and on one level, they imbue him with a certain level of sadness and patheticness. Mm. Um, yeah, initially you think he's just a, you know, he's a he's a re- repressed like divorcee or mm-hmm. maybe even married guy looking for looking for the love of a young boy. Yeah. And then it goes horribly horribly wrong from there. Yeah, and it it culminates in him attempting to drug Justin presumably to have sex with him. Yeah. And instead he throws hot coffee in his face. <laughs> buries him in the garden alive with a snorkel and then just says, I'll see you next year, Arliss Clark. And it's like, oh, this is grim. And it ends with just a shot of a snorkel with a breathing going and a little ball to indicate that Justin's alive under the front garden of his house. Yeah, which is because the previous scene that you'd seen those characters was of him saying he was going to get a shovel. And by that point, you've already seen so many people just casually be killed on the show that you think, oh, well, I guess Justin's dead. But then they find a way. And this, this I guess, also ties into the way Pemberton and Shearsmith would write Inside Number 9. They find a way of just adding that extra bit of awfulness on top of it that makes you think, oh, you thought this was bad. I tell you what, <laughs> yeah. it's so much worse than you could imagine. Yeah, there were worse things than dying. And mm. we're about to... <laughs> Yeah, another one that really stays with me with the um, the daughters of the uh, the Toad mm. obsessive when they discover uh, their friend Mister Scarecrow. Yes, uh, in yes. the field, and uh, it turns out it's a real man who's been tied and gagged and the Scarecrow costume put on him, and he works his sack free uh, to shout to the girls to go and get help, and uh, they just calmly replace the sack on his head. <laughs> because they knew that he was a real person and the farmer is punishing him for uh, sleeping with his wife. And then they skip merrily away <laughs> as this like really like grim panning shot of a kind of a dark field with a, scare- a silent scarecrow in mm-hmm. the middle of it. And it's just glorious. And that was on primetime television. <laughs> yeah, those, the two young girls they got to play those twins are so good at being funny and creepy and kind of in the same way so you know like danny and the shining where Mm. they're saying and doing things that are inherently creepy but you can kind of you obviously know that the people involved are doing everything they can to shield it from them because they don't want them to realize the other things they're saying (laughs) so when they say to to benjamin you know, that, that they're going to accuse him of masturbating, but they say that he has been shaking hands with the governor of love. Um, and they say it in tandem, and it's just really, really funny. But, yeah, when you think of it, it's like, okay, they don't really know what they're saying, fortunately, because it's a terrible thing. But it, they, they, there's a nice balance there that yeah. I think is indicative of the, the line that 
the league just in general would would run for the entirety of the time they were on on the air. Yeah, the the, the kind of the grotesque violence towards animals as well was one of the yeah a repeated wells that they drew from. Not just not just Chinnery, the man who kills every single animal he tries to treat, mm-hmm. but uh, also the the um, the death of the prize toads. Oh where yeah, one of them gets stood on with the with the spiked slipper. Yeah, and the other one gets burnt on the heating element. Yeah, and one of them gets killed in a blender. Yeah, which uh, <laughs> is is fairly gruesome. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, the the in rewatching it, the, all the stuff with Chinnery, I was very surprised that anyone got away with some of that because some of it's just kind of like, like in the Christmas special where he bangs a nail into the back of a rabbit's head and its eye flies out and then <laughs> precipitates a mass death <laughs> of animals, which results in a zebra flying head through the window and landing in the ancestor of Chinnery's hands. Um, <laughs> Like that stuff's just kind of like so out there that you think, oh, okay, that's that, that's um, that's almost acceptable because it goes so far. But then yeah. there's stuff that exists in this kind of like queasy middle ground, like when he is trying to help Bertha Carth, and um, he put essentially he puts his hand in the wrong hole, and instead of pulling out a baby cow, he pulls out the intestines of the mother, <laughs> which flop out in a pool of blood that splashes <laughs> on the faces of all these innocent children. <laughs> And that is just so fundamentally upsetting. <laughs> you can't quite can't quite continent continence it being on television. <laughs> yeah, they, it's also like that they invest so much in the sympathy of not just the character of Chinry who doesn't want to kill any of these animals, mm. who loves all these animals. Yeah, uh, but is cursed. But also the kind of the just the completely caricatural situations he's put in, like the old guy with his lifelong companion dog. <laughs> and he puts down the wrong dog. <laughs> and it's just... <laughs> even now, I think like, it's so horrible, but yeah. it's absolutely hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, it's... Yeah, it's just... It's something that can only come from, like, just incredibly confident writing of, like... No, no regrets, no holds barred. We're just going to make the, the kind of the darkest, most out there extensions to these jokes we can make. Yeah, I think that's something that's really fascinating in rewatching it now with, you know, a slightly more analytical eye. Is realizing that while some of the sketches do kind of advance the the storyline, particularly when you get into like the second series with the plague, that's mm. in, infected infected Royston Basie through the uh, Hillary Briss's, the butcher's special, special stuff, stuff, which he's put in his meat, which gets cut into sandwich meat and gets into the population and everyone starts dying from brutal nosebleeds. Um, <laughs> that, you know, each of those sketches kind of advances the, the meta plot of the show and eventually, you know, ends up, in, the chaos ends up engulfing all of the storylines in the final episode. For the mm. most part each sub, each sketch essentially is whatever this character's joke is it will be the same joke each time but in slight variations and maybe slight uh, exaggerations what yeah. so like the chinnery sketches you know he starts accidentally putting the dog to death and then the next time you see him like he is blowing air into a turtle and his head explodes <laughs> you know and it, it goes from there 
Electrocuting a koi, is it koi carp pond? Yes, electrocuting a koi carp pond because he leaves the tool he's meant to be using alone and it kind of vibrates its way into the pond. The Kez homage where uh, oh. the, the little boy is saying goodbye to his, his bird, which then flies into the pylons. <laughs> which is another, like, surely another glorious, like, northern reference they uh, couldn't resist doing. Yeah, yeah, like, there's, there, is, there are a few things more northern than Kez and... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, the logical extension of that being not that the brother kills Kez, but that the bird just kind of like flies away and instantly dies. Uh, the complete nihilism of it is uh, yes. very satisfying. Yeah, and I think I think nihilism is a big part of of the show, which is weird for a beloved comedy. But, yes, but every except for the revival series, which does at least the Benjamin plotline ends in a in a kind of a hopeful place. Mm. with him having been possessed by the spirit of his uncle <laughs> and then her, the, his, the, the family realising that was a terrible idea and freeing him and yes. saying, you know, you know, it's a place you can always come home to, which is oh, God. not really what you would have ever thought about Priest and Vasey. But for the most part, like every series ends quite bleakly. Um, yeah. Particularly... Well, there's a, there's a return, the returning theme of like, Without getting too deep about it, it's about the, the returning theme is the idea of being trapped, isn't it? Mm. And yeah, the kind I mean, of be trapped in your everyday situation, or yeah. literally trapped in the town. Yeah, I mean the 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 sign is "Welcome to Royston Vasey, you'll never leave." Yeah. Uh, so I think that the way, like the first series, the plot line running through it is really all about Benjamin, who was the focal point character of the radio series, I believe. So they kind of carry that over. And, mm. you know, he arrives in order to go hiking with his friend who ends up being killed yeah. by Edward and Tubbs uh, unrelatedly to anything that's going on with him and then being trapped with his aunt and uncle who won't let him leave. And then he finally mm. just makes a break for it and he ends up being put into Edward and Tubbs's house to be the playmate for their recently returned son, David. Um, yeah. But even that also ties into the fact that, like, Tubbs in that episode because David's returned and he's like a fairly normal at that point offspring a fairly normal yeah. guy who's like I'm going to take you down to London and everything and she reveals herself to have had these long harboured dreams of leaving of leaving uh, it's so sad and she ends up uh, acquiescing to her kind of like uh, or giving in and being like yes I'll stay here and also trapping Benjamin it is a very a very bleak way for a, a series of a, of a comedy to end yeah, because even like with Benjamin's uh, aunt and uncle, like they also they want him to stay. They built a little cage for him <laughs> in the basement, mm -hmm. and it's the idea of like because their lives are you know their lives are so regimented, but they 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 really wanted a son. Yeah, and they're so desperate for him to stay. And even like the to get onto you know the creme de la creme of. Uh, of dark characters, Papa Lazarus. Yes. Constant yeah. collector of wives. Mm -hmm. You just... <laughs> and it's like, is, is that, it, it does kind of drive the show on, that sense of just desperate clinging to things, but really just wanting to leave. Just get the hell out. <laughs> yeah. But none of them are able to. None of them can break free. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, it's, it's kind of interesting in kind of like the subtext, I guess, of why the show came back, because 
that's actually there isn't like a sense that they're coming back because they feel trapped by this creation no where or like oh this is something they desperately need it's not like the revival of roseanne where no you kind of no. get the sense that roseanne came back to it because like she has nothing else that she could do and abc <laughs> wanted it because like you know it's a it's a name thing that used to be very popular so we're going to bring it back and there's some kind of attempt at relevancy all of the members of the league of gentlemen have gone on to very successful careers you know pemberton yeah. and Shearsmith created psychoville and inside number nine mark gatiss has written for doctor who and co-created sherlock and is mm. a, as a is a pretty prolific actor in his own right outside of the stuff he creates um, i think gattis is a fantastic actor yeah really i think is. in re-watching this the, the first two series you really get the sense because he apart from like hillary briss and auntie val i think he tends to play characters who are a little more grounded and yeah. he, I think, often plays the straight man in a lot of the scenes. Yeah. And he's very good at doing that, being funny and also bringing a lot of empathy and heart to it. Like the the the, the guy from Creme Brulee, who's this oh. like faded rock star who <sighs> every scene he's in, he's talking about how it was great that he got to do all of these things and then talking himself into believing that, you know, oh, it's a shit business, really. I'm glad it's a shit I'm, business. I'm glad I'm out. I, think I, I still, my heart breaks a little bit every time I think of that scene where um, his, is it his son's friend comes around? Mm, yes. Um, and he's like, oh, yeah, I, did, I was in a bit of a music industry a while back. Um, I've got a tape knocking around here. I'll see if I can find one for you. And he opens a drawer and it's full of tapes. Yeah. And it's just a little part of me dies every time I think about that. And just, yeah. He, I think Gattis does, I think Gattis does the, um, I suppose, the, the, the deepest characters, um, I would say. Even in the, the new uh, specials, mm. um, I couldn't believe how good that, the bingo caller was yeah like all alone number one <laughs> at, at the end and it's just that whole monologue just cut that even out of a league of gentlemen it doesn't even need to be in the league of gentlemen it's mm. just an absolutely fantastic dramatic performance yeah in this in what feels like a very broad idea for a sketch of a bingo caller instead of doing all the legs 11 kind of stuff revealing heartbreaking details of his personal life and the love affair <laughs> that failed. <laughs> yeah, it was his, sex, his sexual awakening yeah. um, in in Southeast Asia and his marriage fell apart and he's left all alone at me. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking. I think, yeah, uh, even though everyone else, I think, is good at what they need to do and, and Shearsmith and Pemberton are capable of uh, of of real kind of depth when needed. I think they definitely felt like they were more comfortable playing the grotesques. And, yeah. you know, I think, you know, Shearsmith is so good at playing Tub, uh, playing Edward, who yeah. is, doesn't really have any redeeming qualities at all. He's just <laughs> a no, it's, heartless yeah. murderer. And, you know, when he <laughs> says things like, don't worry, Tubbs, they won't get far. And, like, he's so good at that kind of glee. And Papa Lazaro, who obviously is... Oh. There's nothing There's nothing human in Papa Lazaro. <laughs> <laughs> he's just a monster. Oh, God. Yeah, he's... Uh, 
he, in many ways, he's, he's a standout character because mm. he's kind of like the boogeyman for this town of absolutely horrendous people. Yeah. Like he is by far and away the most terrifying. Yeah, I remember watching the Christmas special for the first time and how he factors into that, which is that he shows up right at the end and it's revealed that he had kidnapped the vicar's mother as a child and he's yeah. come back for her. <laughs> the, the 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 scene of him like grabbing the vicar itself is is nasty oh, is horrible it's... but the the flashbacks the way it's intercut with this kind of like hazy her hazy memories of someone yeah. dressed as santa claus showing up or father christmas uh showing up and grabbing her mother and taking oh, away God. it's so it's so <laughs> brutally but sad it's... Edwin, that was a that was a Christmas special. I know. <laughs> aired on the Friday BBC. And it was the finale of one that had already featured um vampiric children killing hair lip and yeah, a yeah. zoo exploding <laughs> essentially <sighs> because of the, the chinnery backstory. Uh it was yeah, I mean so that's very funny and it's 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 a strong contender for like the single best thing they've ever done. <laughs> but yeah, it's very weird to think that they were such a the show was so hugely popular at that time that they were given three age free license to do pretty much whatever he wants they wanted yeah 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 there's not a thing you can't make a joke about the um, yeah some of the stuff that they do in legs akimbo <laughs> for example even in like the late 90s is pretty uh it's pretty risque with the uh the references to um sex education at school mm. Um, where it just descends into the three of them arguing about career progression of actors and who's been blowing the director yeah. uh, in order to get this particular part in front of a group of, like, 15-year-olds. Yeah, and I think it's it's a sign of how clever they are and how able they are to kind of couch jokes that in a different context would just be beyond the pale Yeah, in a context that very clearly says, no, these people are idiots. Yeah, And Ollie, the leader of the legs akimbo troop who writes all of these terrible social lesson <laughs> plays has no idea what he's actually doing and is just writing these really broad and offensive things about you know aids yeah. and homosexuality and oh, things God, like that yeah. uh, and, and couching it in those terms makes it uh, it makes it kind of easier to watch that and think okay yeah these jokes are are truly reprehensible but they have been they are being presented by reprehensible people which i think also is one of the reasons why even though papa lazaru is a character in blackface yeah it's it, it doesn't and and that you know there's there's a very fine line with kind of blackface and its use like when you watch it you think he's not really embodying any stereotypes of black people he is just a character in blackface who does awful things although the uh i will say the optics of a character in black black face kidnapping a lot of white women is not great (laughs) (laughs) and is maybe the sort of thing that you can only get away with in a country that's like 80 percent white people (laughs) and has a a long history of of blackface and entertainment as 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 england does i I mean i suppose in in many ways, the thing it's the thing it's tapping into most though is uh, it's it's actually it's the terror of the circus, isn't it? If yeah. anything, it's uh, it's it's slightly dodgy in its representation of circus folk. Yeah, but that again, that's a long. I suppose that's a long tradition of British comedy is to the idea of um, running away from the circus and the visiting the completely naff local circus coming to visit you. 
yeah. the town. Yeah, um, and the one that would come to Royston Vasey would be the most... The naffest of all. Yeah, although also the most horrifying, but also one that would be horrified by Royston Vasey to the extent that they would want to run away because everyone there terrifies them, which I yes. think is, uh, is, is quite a fascinating dynamic to see played out. <laughs> yeah, uh, of course, once they've put all Papa Lazarus' wives inside the animals... Yeah, which... That's... Uh... <laughs> Then they can go away after that. Yeah, I remember that revelation at the end of the third series being one of those ones that really kind of like blew my mind and just being like, this is this is really weird and surreal and dark. <laughs> and I, I liked how they kind of called back to that into the in the specials by having all the characters, like at least one of the characters who was in one of the animals. Yes. Briefly mentioning, it's like, oh, I was in an elephant for a bit. It's like, <laughs> okay, yeah, you've never had the strictest adherence to continuity, but it's nice that no. you're acknowledging that the the third series ended in a very strange place. Uh, I think it also in terms of the specials and Papa Lazo, it is, we can't get through this without mentioning the... Um... Possibly the entire purpose of bringing that, <laughs> bringing back the specials was to build up to the final uh, scene. Yeah, of uh, where the, they reveal, isn't it? They reveal they're going to start fracking underneath the town. Yes, yeah, um, because they, the part of the plot line is that they're going to incorporate Royston Vasey into another town, which would destroy the like mayoral kind of office which is where like a lot of the resistance comes from but yeah also they're gonna start fracking and stuff but the it's revealed that the photo um, booth the photo booth has uh has been a, a conduit for uh abducting uh women mm-hmm. down into the tunnels beneath royston vasey over which it's revealed papa lazaru holds sway mm-hmm. and finishes with it's 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 a mine wife now <laughs> yeah, it's a wife mine now. <laughs> wife mine now. Oh no. Yeah, when when that happened and I was watching it, I had to pause because <laughs> I laughed I laughed so hard at that as the final punchline. It's so perfectly built up to. It's such a great inversion of probably the show's like most famous punchline yeah. or catchphrase. And it's such a great use of Papa Lazaru and, and maybe like an acknowledgement on their part that it's kind of very hard to use him at this point in any kind of major way because yeah. of, of the aforementioned blackface, but using him in that like little sort of 10 second cameo where they also get to really milk his appearance where he's walking, yeah. walking down the lines of women in the with moment. the light behind him and the, <sighs> the, the unmistakable silhouette of him. Um, it's, it is, it's a real masterful <laughs> sequence uh, and yeah, and, and it's obviously kind of like a great resolution to this ongoing joke, uh, which they also tease out really nicely. Because I think in the second episode, you see someone go into the phone booth, and then they sh- photo yes. booth, and they show you the inside of it has like the spot where you're meant to put your head, or like, and it has like the big white eyes and lips and stuff and it's like yeah. oh right uh, something going on here something Papa Lazarou related is happening I wonder how much of like I was pondering their influences mm. or their obvious influences and I wonder how much of that that need for kind of a dark payoff does come from their obsession with you know the short horror stories I think it's yeah. a huge part of it like I, and part of that is informed by the work they've done since like yeah Inside Number 9 is so clearly influenced by something like tales of the unexpected or um 
you know, the works of M.R. James or something, which I know is a big thing for Mark Gatiss. Uh, yeah. Uh, or Nigel Neal. I think there is that sense that horror in general is, is such a key part of of their work and they understand that there is a there is a very strong link between horror and comedy in that both elicit an involuntary reaction. Yes. Uh, and they both kind of are built to some respect on surprise of leading you to think one thing's going to happen but then going in another direction and a good horror story and a good joke kind of have a similar construction and yeah they have to be rooted in believable like circumstances to begin with mm -hmm. and then they hit you with uh, the unexpected yes and also uh, they they can be you can be kind of like loose and play around with it but like a certain level of rigor uh, to us to structure is really useful in both like for a really tight comedy sketch like you can do what saturday night live does and kind of noodle around for like eight minutes and in search of a punchline <laughs> or yeah. you can very concisely have the idea and kind of shape it to such a point where three minutes you're out you're done you've made everyone laugh and i think horror is mm. as a very similar sort of thing like something that is very carefully considered will always have more of an impact certainly if you're going for like eeriness and atmosphere than something that's just yeah. kind of like throwing together a bunch of tropes in any old order yeah 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 and their gift for i suppose their gift for setting a scene and establishing a character very quickly mm. i always think must come from you know things like the twilight zone and yeah that idea of you only have a very short amount of time to make this character believable and then they're going to do something terrifying and it's it's they seem to have taken that lesson on board yeah and um, i think you can also see that in you know like like the fact that every scene is like a self-contained sketch and mm. they do build up over time but there is always that sense that if you if someone happened to tune into an episode of the league of gentlemen having heard it was good and they tuned into like episode four of series two they yeah. could probably still pretty much follow what was going on because all of those characters yeah. are so well drawn and because like so many of them are just kind of like variations on a single joke that they're going to then extrapolate from that it, it, it you can you get a richer experience if you're watching all of it in order and see how these things build but you know like that bingo caller one there's stuff in there that you can oh, just watch and be like oh this is like this is amazing this is an amazing thing also in the the specials the re the kind of calling back to the luigi sketch where oh, yeah. in the first one it was you know the two the, the couple arguing via their questions or their statements that they are addressing to luigi and then in this one the couple have broken up and they're having a meal with their new partners and as it's going along you realize that oh the boyfriend of the <laughs> of the woman is beating her and oh, God, the, yeah. the the gay relationship that the husband is in has is is kind of falling apart and then yeah. like the partners are getting involved to it like the the boy the, the the male partner is saying like i i mistake food for love luigi and stuff like that <laughs> it's another case of them taking a funny premise and injecting it with just boundless sorrow <laughs> <laughs> Oh, like the yeah, the um, the posh uh, the posh woman with the cleaner. Mm, yeah, uh, she's per perennially referring to the husband, who it turns out is 
well, he's dead, isn't he? He's been dead for 20 years, yeah. Oh, God. And it's her mother <laughs> who's doing the housework. Again, though, there's something about, like, I think that's also what I was initially drawn to as a, you know, as somebody who grew up in a, a relatively middle-class part of a shit town. Mm-hmm. The, that kind of slightly tense interplay of the middle class and working classes in, in it always struck a chord with me. Yeah. Like the, the Papa Lazarou visit to the suburban house mm-hmm. with uh, the dirty fingernails on the door knocker. <laughs> was always like, and like the kind of the, the polite welcome, but the absolute terror of somebody turning up on your front doorstep from the circus. Yeah. But also like, yeah, that contrast between, um, yeah, the delusional woman in the absolutely perfect middle-class house pretending her husband's going to take her on these lovely holidays. But her mum is living on like the most ridiculously caricatured council estate, mm. and like the sense they hint at that the mum character has a just a more vibrant life than her, like a yeah. more vibrant sex life and things like that, yeah. which is called attention to constantly. Yes, yes, <laughs> constantly and grotesquely. Yeah. Uh, which also draws on, I think, like like uh, I said earlier, like the bawdiness of it, I think, is also something that feels quintessentially quite British, but also very Northern. Like, mm. that sense that the people in, like, outside of, of London and the South, but maybe particularly outside of London. I mean, this is probably less true now, but certainly the sense that you get in the, in, like, the 90s, like, the sense that there is kind of more of an authentic earthiness to people there and they'll be talking about, uh, you know, even if it's only kind of like jokingly and through innuendo, constantly making references to each other's sex yeah. lives and things like that, which you really do see in that. Um, is it Charlie and Sheila are the married couple? Something like that? Charlie and Stella, maybe? It is Charlie. It might be Stella, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, they're constantly sniping each other through sexual innuendos through whichever third party is in the room with them. And... <laughs> Uh, that is that is a kind of a hallmark of all of their work is of the the Lee gentleman's work is a real kind of ribald quality that feels removed from like the gentility of what you would kind of think of if in terms of like a lot of British ske- sketch comedy before then, particularly like the the eighties with your not the nine o'clock news or your mm. Fry and Laurie and things like that. Yeah, it's not a it's not a, it's not a civil space that they're occupying. No, yeah, <laughs> the, uh, yeah. I don't, I don't love her anymore, Louise. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I was. It, that is again that that made me think of Phoenix Nights and the kind mm. of that idea of some of it is rooted in a kind of, I suppose, clubland type of comedy. Yeah, um, even thinking of another joke that I suppose, or another character that has become much more problematic twenty years later, but I thought they dealt with quite well, which is Babs. Yeah, um, in the, the the initial series, has you know, she's mid sex change operation, mm-hmm. and huge amounts of comedy has got out of that. But it's never making fun of. Yeah, if you see what I mean, it's more that there's just the kind of uh, I suppose the messiness of life is the joke. Yeah, because I think a lot of the jokes are more about people's discomfort. Yeah, because she's a cab driver and she's talking about the her sex change operations and things like that and why it involves. And some of them are just kind of like out and out silly 
jokes like saying that she wasn't allowed to go in the gym because her penis yeah. fell out and then she says and then um the cab the passenger says like of your of your trousers no at my locker i just keep it for the memories you know um i i, I do think they invest her with a lot more humanity than you would expect of a comedy in the 90s which essentially has a trans character yeah, um, yeah. it kind of you know if you compare it to like you know buffalo bill in <laughs> science of the lambs for example in terms yeah. of the ways in which trans people were depicted in 90s pop culture it feels very far removed even though i think there are there are still elements of it now that kind of play a little more queasily just in terms of the fact that you know there are there's greater awareness of trans people and trans issues now than there was at the time i suppose the interesting thing is that she was she was always one of the most uh likable characters Mm, yeah in the sense of like whenever like so if jeff was in the back of her car as i think he was in several sketches it's He was the one that was the absolute nightmare character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, and she was just trying to drive him. Yeah, it's it's it's. Uh, yeah, I think they, in a sense, I think they they did. I think they in the, in the recent episodes they did try and deal with it. There was a joke about all the uh, the alphabet mm-hmm. uh, acronym. Yeah, uh, um, actively seeking reassignment or not made your mind up. Yeah. <laughs> Which uh, but, which is a, is a is a funny is a funny line, <laughs> but, but I, I think as I say, it goes back to that idea that most of the jokes work because they treat all these characters with a kind of like affection. Yeah, I think the the only exception maybe would be Hilary Briss, who's just an who's ap- just the evil manipulator. Yeah, I although he does have a lovely relationship with the cow. Yes, yeah, I guess he does love his cow wife. <laughs> Yeah, it's cow life. We can't forget that. Uh, but yeah, there is. They do invest a lot of humanity into it. I think you see that in the specials as well with the way that they treat Pauline. Who? Oh yeah, because uh, she's a monster. But yes, she's a lovable monster. Yeah, she's like you know in the first series where she's this domineering person who's like a advisor to people seeking work, who's physically and emotionally abusive to the people <laughs> under her under her command. Uh, so, so I'm rewatching it now. I was like, "All oh, right, this is the reason why I was always terrified of being unemployed." Like yeah. when I was watching it as a kid, obviously I didn't have to have a job, but then like that was all that made being unemployed to me seem like an absolute nightmare. Absolutely I was just thinking, terrifying. "Oh god, what if I get a Pauline?" But in the the revival, like the first scene is essentially them just recreating the first scene of her in the original room. Yeah, and then it's revealed like oh they're just playing these parts because she's got dementia and this yeah. is kind of part of an attempt to try and break her out of it and it's to get her back to something that she loves yes yeah and then you also and, and then that whole plot line ends like with real tragedy with jeff having been hired uh. to kill someone's wife accidentally killing pauline who has been married to mickey who's got to like live out his dream of being a fireman a fireman uh, oh god which is another lovely callback but yeah that just like that ends in a place of real kind of profound sadness <laughs> for, for two characters who had always been more like at various points kind of more monstrous but also more human than a lot of the other mm. ones and again with the, the job center uh yeah again it's 
it's something that 20 years on, it doesn't actually feel like a huge amount. You would need to change a huge amount to make that relevant. Mm. Like, yeah, the, yeah the, the abuse of the unemployed is not exactly uh, an issue for which the comedy doesn't make sense anymore. Yeah, you get the sense that Pauline would be a minister now. Yes, yes. I think a junior minister refusing to resign. <laughs> yeah, her, her rhetoric is has about as much empathy as your average conservative politician. <laughs> yeah. I think in, in also in terms of rewatching the show now, I think it's really fascinating because I I found myself comparing legal gentlemen strangely to the X Files. Uh, I was thinking about that, yeah. In yeah. in in kind of this broad sense that they're both kind of about the point at which modernity encroaches upon kind of like an unseen folkloric horror and a lot of the x-files and this is kind of very explicitly stated in like some episodes like the episode with the freak show and the 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 the, the twin that kind of escapes like they're talking about how modernity is wiping out kind of the the weirder stuff because we know more about the world and the whole idea of like the new road encroaching upon Royston Vasey and them pushing yeah. back against it, reveal it, point putting people from you know our world into contact with these kind of this undisturbed community essentially that's been allowed to exist on its own terms for hundreds of years and has developed its own kind of quirks yeah. and eccentricities as a result. Uh, the, the, the bulldozer of uh, globalization and mm. the uh, the professional state intruding upon provincial life yeah which is even more the case in the revival where edwards and tubbs become strangely the kind of the focal point of a media sensation because edwards like usual rants about local people and outsiders becomes a rallying cry for the your kind of like the eurosceptics of yeah of the of the british public <laughs> Isn't it on the verge of his triumph? It turns out that no, he's actually cut the faces off of the uh, people he kidnapped. Mm-hmm. And so, the yeah. person who was demonised actually deserved to be demonised because they are awful. Yeah, that <laughs> that um, that was a great, and also like I think help. It, it was really good of them to bring David Morrissey in for that. Oh, he was fantastic. He was. He's very good at um, registering a look of absolute horror. And him showing up and seeing like the bodies tied to the chair and then just blood streaming around <laughs> where their faces are covered up. The paper plates. In terms of boiling down the aesthetic of the League of Gentlemen, I think that, that that scene really encompasses a lot of what they do. I did I did think of um I thought of the uh, the X Files episode which always terrified me, probably around the same age, which mm. was Home. Yes. Oh, which that's is a rough one. But in a sense, there is a kind of there's a kind of thematic link there of mm. that the 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 incomprehensibility of the outsiders entering, you know, the local uh, area. It's just that the X Files doesn't play it for laughs, whereas the League yeah. of Gentlemen emphatically does. Yeah, and also the X Files because of it's essentially a monster of the week show for the most part they're not really revisiting a lot of those creatures that often like tombs came back but for the most part yeah they they don't kind of draw them back whereas this is whereas the lee gentleman does just really through exposure because you're seeing these characters over time and you get to know them a bit more 
you mm. kind of develop a certain amount of sympathy for a lot of them, even the the really horrible ones. Like Edward and Tubbs are they are serial killers who yeah. have killed a lot of people. They are they're, brother they're and sister. Serial killers. Yeah, they are exactly the family from home, but slightly more more able to hold a conversation briefly. <laughs> <laughs> um, they they are like horrible but you also do kind of want them to keep getting away with it if only because they're yeah. entertaining yeah yeah and, and for Tubbs especially because she's she 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 always thought Swansea was a myth <laughs> but when she finds out that there is a Swansea yeah it's a beautiful moment but it's ripped away from her ripped away from her and uh yeah when she asks edwards you know is uh, heaven like swansea but no yes but bigger (laughs) yeah there is there is kind of a a naivete to tubs that is kind of endearing that there is a sense that that edward has a very strong sense of everything that's going on yeah he is more connected to the way the world works and she is deliberately like he has shielded so much of the world from her yeah because he knows that what's what's required to stop new road is to create this monster mm-hmm. yeah uh, the, the animal monster to uh to halt the development which does sh- yeah it does show he's very calculating whereas she's just an innocent yeah, uh, uh, that that whole sequence of the reveal of the beast of Royston Vasey is one of the one of my favourite sequences. And again, <laughs> a sign of how much how visually uh, sophisticated the show was, even from its original days, and why like those scenes that they did shoot in front of a, a studio audience feel really out of place. Because whenever mm. they are forced to kind of resort to a multicam setup, it kind of feels like they're tying one hand behind their back when. Yeah when they get to do things like a hugely atmospheric almost quater mass style sequence of of revelation it is like really really unnerving and unsettling and then there's also a joke of like you see edward kind of like hunched over watching it and laughing with glee but it's it's still you know a really effective work of horror of these workmen just uncovering this uh, unfathomable uh, monstrosity (laughs) and the the kind of the the way that they filmed the autopsy as well mm-hmm. is basically like, yeah, an homage to science fiction and horror films mm. that they've watched up until the point where they just go, oh, it's just three animals tied together. Yeah. And then fuck it. Okay. <laughs> Let's carry on with the road. Mm. But on the topic of the X-Files, the one I, I noted down, which is the, the zeitgeist thing that made me that made me think of like how to... I suppose how to talk about uh, them in 2018 mm-hmm. was uh, Key and Peel, right? Yeah, in the sense of their comedy sketch show, which I've watched a lot and rewatched a lot recently, mm-hmm. and their obvious love of horror, yeah, as a way to essentially tell outrageous jokes. And but there's something in obviously one of them is incredibly American and one of them is incredibly British. Yes. But they both seem to have hit upon a similar vein of of making incredibly popular material and characters, albeit I suppose fifteen years apart. Mm. And I think they also share an approach to the material of trying to mimic the look of the thing that they are homaging yeah. as closely as possible. Like that's one of the things about Key and Peel that is amazing is the way in which you know, like there's that great sketch where 
key is going in search of no sorry uh, i think uh, uh, jordan peele is playing a a soldier like a, a um a general who's in search of like hit this old soldier to work with him played by uh, yes. key michael key and you th- it's kind of shot very much like a, a rambo style action yeah. movie and you think oh he's going to try and recruit this guy and in fact he's just looking for recommendations for names and then <laughs> as it goes on uh key michael key just starts doing all these inc- these incredibly violent things to himself to demonstrate <laughs> that he's still tough enough to do it and the the half of the joke or even maybe 75 percent of the joke of that is it looks so much like the thing they're making yeah. fun of and yeah. the league does that as well like it does it's particularly like the the third series when they they drop any kind of like audience soundtrack or anything or the christmas special where they really do mm. go for go towards the idea of like oh we're going to shoot this and make it look and feel like a horror film from the 70s that just happens to have yeah. a lot of really funny jokes in it yeah i was i was thinking of the uh and the um the continental breakfast <laughs> uh scene with uh, like the kind of the clear nods to the shining yeah. but also it takes part it takes place in the most banal like modern hotel yeah <laughs> and but i i just it, it it struck me that there was a there was a feel that all of a sudden the league of gentlemen feels more relevant than maybe some of the other shows from that we were talking about at the start mm. um it feels like it almost because of i suppose the rediscover and the repopularity of that that kind of horror comedy yeah maybe this is me saying that you know maybe it's time for uh reese shearsmith and uh steve pemberton to make an oscar winning uh <laughs> <laughs> an oscar winning incredibly insightful uh horror comedy thriller yeah, I think they they deserve another chance at, at a movie because uh, I I wasn't a big fan of the Lee Gentleman movie. Like it, no, I think it's 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 the worst thing they did. Yeah, by, by quite some distance. It's very it's very clever in concept. Like the idea of like oh the characters from the show come into our real world to kill their creators or to mm. act they accidentally kill their creators yeah. uh, for the most part in order to prevent the show ending, but. Yeah, it's just it's it's it feels like they had that one good idea, but then they just never were able to really back it up with the jokes to really sustain it. It's very disappointing. They've, they've, they've then followed it with you know two incredible series where they didn't even return to any of the League of Gentlemen characters. Mm. So like Inside Number Nine and Psychoville, I feel like. All the ideas they have in those series, they could easily do a standalone film without any reference to the league. Mm. I don't think it. I don't think they need to do that again. Yeah, I think that that's that's one of the things that's been really was really like like you were saying about how it doesn't feel as if they needed to do this again. It's just that they wanted to do it again. Yeah, there wasn't. They're not doing this because there's a sense of desperation. Like the no. in, inside number nine has been going for like four series now a fifth's on the way and they were working on the fourth series of that at about the same time they were working on this so Pemberton and Pemberton and Shearsmith definitely don't need it Jeremy Dyson's been like had huge success with ghost stories both as a play and now as a movie and like we said mm. Mark Gatiss is is constantly in demand I think, yeah stratospheric success yeah, yeah I think the 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 way in which Inside Number Nine and Psychoville kind of continue on the tone and, ext- and aesthetic of the League of Gentlemen, even though it's only two of them, I think 
is one of the reasons why I think that definitely helped the revival feel fresh because they they're clearly playing in that area more than necessarily Gatiss and uh, Dyson are because they're, they're yeah. kind of doing things their their work has kind of Dyson kind of goes into more out and out horror than yeah. comedy and Gatiss is kind of just doing a bunch of different things and it, it feels like them continuing to kind of do that sense of grotesque bawdy campy but also scary horror comedy uh, has allowed them to kind of maintain a lot of relevancy and keep themselves kind of in in fighting shape about it like it, it doesn't feel I, like that much of a leap to go from inside number nine to doing the league of gentlemen again no no and they've also become a lot more confident i suppose letting others actors shine in the, in that show mm. like the um they don't need to be in every they don't need to play every character yeah and i actually think that's quite a that's quite a positive development um, yeah, if you think of the the episode with, uh, oh, no, is it the one with Gemma Artson in, like the Twelve Days of Christine or whatever it's called? The the one. Oh, uh, that's uh, Sheridan Smith. Oh yeah, Sheridan Smith. Yeah, Sheridan? that one. They're they're. That's barely, a fantastic episode. Yeah, yeah, they're barely in that at all, but it's such a great self-contained story that they, yeah, they because they're always working with different actors who kind of like come in and do a few days' work. They're they're allowed to really kind of like shine as actors and their working relationship on that show sounds really great like they are just constantly setting themselves up bigger and bigger <laughs> challenges to try and come up with and, and writing themselves in and out of corners it feels like something that really revitalized them not that psychoville kind of outwore its welcome or anything but it certainly feels like they're challenging themselves more than you would expect of like these very established figures of British comedy would do because you'd think they could just rest on their laurels at this point, but instead they're every year they're committing to coming up with six completely new stories of new characters that have to shock and surprise and amuse people. And uh, it's honestly incredible how well that show does. I I was, I I remember like, well, we we talked about League of Gentlemen Christmas special Mm -hmm. and how shocking the Papa Lazarou abduction is at the end. Yeah. But the the ending of the Inside Number Nine Christmas special. Oh, the Devil the, um, of Christmas. The Devil yeah, of Christmas. Oof. Yeah. Was like I remember texting several people like I can't believe I've literally just seen that mm. again on primetime TV. Like, thank God my parents weren't watching. Is all <laughs> I'm saying for that one. <laughs> yeah, I um the, the ending of it, of Inside Number Nine episode that sticks with me the most just because I think it's. It, it kind of gets that idea of the horror in the banal really well is the end of the call center one. Oh yeah because that whole episode is really a it's just a brilliant conceit and for having an episode shot and played entirely through CCTV cameras yeah essentially it is essentially the best found footage thing I've ever seen <laughs> um, and having this this incredibly bleak and sad and strange story play out and then ending on a single image that is brings all of the plot together like all of these different strands that have been kind of floating around but there mm-hmm. is also just hints at the kind of workplace violence that occurs yeah. all over the world all the time 
Um, it's, it's it's a deeply unsettling way to end an episode of a suppose a, a nominal comedy show. I I think like in in terms of I was thinking about it's contemporary. I suppose is Black Mirror. Mm, yeah, but I I if I'm honest, I, I sometimes struggle with Black Mirror. Um, I think almost because of the things we've talked about today. In the, I feel like Inside Number Nine and League of Gentlemen were always more. They always felt grounded. Yeah. And because of Black, Black Mirror's very nature, it's it's exactly what we've been talking about. It's very, um, I suppose, very thoughtful, very abstract, kind of uh, a kind of a, a more considered kind of uh, not necessarily. Well, I suppose it's comedy and, and horror. Mm-hmm. It isn't rooted in those like everyday, the everyday characters, and I, I think that's why Africa probably come back to League of Gentlemen and Love Inside Number Nine so much. It's less. It feels less intellectual. Is that a fair thing? Is that how I, you'd put it? I, yeah, I would say so. I think that it, uh, Black Mirror is more concerned with maybe exploring, you know, the impact of technology on humanity, which, in some respects, is why it can hit the highs that it occasionally does. Things like San Junipero or mm. uh, the Complete History of You, which is kind of like probably one of the best ones for just a really great sad short story in kind of television terms but the thing about inside number nine is that you know they aren't really constrained by theme so much they're 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 constrained by conceit which is that every episode has to take place within a number nine but that in itself is very it's not much of a constraint Yeah. yeah so it's really just they are three to do pretty much anything they want you know it can be a birthday party that goes wrong it can be scenes set you know in the backstage room of the theater it can be a trial for witchcraft you know like <laughs> oh god that's a weird episode it is a weird episode it's very funny it, um it, it it's another one in the in similar to the the it's a wife mine now joke <laughs> the 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 way that show eventually gets around to someone saying calling goody two shoes is a real kind of case where you think okay i think this episode was written just so you could use that joke yeah yeah <laughs> also in in rewatching the league uh, a pun that i don't think i quite appreciated at the time but which i think is absolutely phenomenal now is when benjamin traps his aunt and uncle in that toad enclosure yeah yeah and uh the uncle says Curses hoist by my own pet toad. That's too good to leave out, isn't it? Yeah, it, it's another one where you wonder, is that why they wanted him to have toads? Because at some point, two series in, they could have him say that amazing line. Um, but yeah, I, 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 love that, I love that little toad enclosure. It's absolutely terrifying. Yeah, it is. It it does look like something from the the Silence of the Lambs or something yeah. like that. It's like, why is this under someone's house? It's <laughs> it's, it's deeply it's deeply unnerving that that's in, a, in someone's home. Yeah, uh, having um, having lambasted uh, Black Mirror for its intellectualism, I was gonna uh, <laughs> I was gonna suggest uh, the only thing that did occur to me is. Um, again, thinking about the fact that it's been 20 years, mm-hmm. which is insane. Yeah. But um, it also seems to have stood up so well and maybe deservedly 
um, because the kinds of things it was trying to do have also in the last, particularly the last 10 years, come back into mainstream, particularly American uh, fashion, which is the, the desire to tell modern fairy tales. Mm. Um, and not modern fairy tales just in the Disney sense, but in the original Brothers Grimm sense of they're set in everyday life and they're absolutely terrifying. In a sense, it, it, it deserves to be rediscovered if people haven't, hmm. because there seems to be a new enthusiasm for kind of modern, weird fairy tale terror. Yeah, yeah. And and in, in that sense, I think they, I'm, I'm glad it's, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that they're, A, that they're still producing excellent stuff, and B, that there's maybe an opportunity that these specials might rekindle people to vi- revisit the originals. Um, because I, I'm not sure many people have done it better Hmm. In that, in that particular, in again, this is very intellectual, but in that aim of Brothers Grimm, state of a nation through horror, mm-hmm. is is something that, upon reflection, I think the League of Gentlemen did very well. Yeah, I think in in when I was kind of like thinking about why the show, how the whole, how the show holds up over time, you know, like we're talking about characters like Papa Lazarou or, or Babs, kind of existing in kind of like a, a, a grey area and how the show handles them now uh, in terms of like how the show was in, in the 90s and the early 2000s I think one of the reasons a lot of it holds up is that it's kind of it's kind of horrible in all eras um, yeah. like if that show had been made in the 70s it would be horrifying if it was made now it would be like really horrifying and I yeah. think they operate so well in that realm of the eerie and the just slightly exaggerated and slightly outside of kind of everyday normalcy that it it feels really unsettling in a lot of ways whilst also being kind of like ridiculously funny as well yeah and i think that that is more in fashion now but it's also something that where it ha- has a kind of like a timelessness to it as well. Yeah, people will always, people always keep returning to the, well, hopefully, yeah. always keep returning to the just the complete, absolute grotesque darkness and laughing at it. Mm. Um, yeah. It just seems that people may, like, it, I don't know, it wasn't, it wasn't such a in vogue thing in, you know, early noughties, but it certainly is now. Mm. Um, whether it's a geopolitical change or not, but I, I just feel it's something that, um, to return to that idea of they were, in those first two series, they just seemed to not really care about boundaries. Yeah. If there's something that was going to be timelessly horrific and funny, <laughs> mm-hmm. they said it and did it. And uh, I, I feel like, yeah, revisiting them, it made me think about that, yeah, maybe we're a bit more ready to receive that than we were maybe 10 years ago. Yeah, because I I feel like 10 years ago when just before Psychoville came out or maybe even just uh, after Psychoville came out, I think that bleakness definitely fell out of step. Yeah. Uh, Maybe, I don't know, like a post-Obama election optimism, maybe. Yeah, yeah. That sense that things were getting better uh, and then now thinking, actually, things have maybe gotten a little worse (laughs) Uh, yeah, things have... and then maybe things never, maybe things never got better. We just convinced ourselves it did. Yeah, we just all felt a little better about how things were going. 
yeah. Uh, yeah, maybe people are just more receptive to that. And maybe also in terms of just specifically the League of Gentlemen, like the very muted, deservedly muted response to the movie, I think probably, yeah. you know, maybe that's what kept them from doing more stuff together for such a long time. Yeah. Even though they always said they would do stuff together again. Um, maybe like the response to that maybe made them a little bit too reticent about jumping back into that whole world again uh which is why i think jumping back into it now like like you know they say at the end of the the three specials there's that sense of like you know it's a place you can always go back to you know even yeah. though royston vasey is a, a hell on earth <laughs> it is it is like but you'll never leave Edward. yeah you'll never leave but you know it is like springfield in that regard it is a it is a fully realized and developed world with characters that you can return to and mm. they feel you know at this point now that there's a certain element of nostalgia to it but there is such a, there is a, that you can get affection for these characters even if they are among the worst dregs of humanity <laughs> well it's like uh, isn't it like del toro you learn to uh, you make friends with the monsters mm, yeah making friends with papa lazari yeah, because that's, you know, you don't want to know what would happen if you're not friends with him. <laughs> you get turned into an elephant. Uh, yeah, so uh, obviously this episode we've uh, has been going on a little bit, and I think if we are going to recommend anything, we're just going to recommend everything the people uh, involved in the League of Gentlemen have ever done, except for the film, uh, which is very yes. much more of a curio sort of thing. Uh, and probably only worthwhile if, you know it's 2005 and you're watching it in a theatre and walking away dejected about the whole thing which is certainly yes. my experience of it uh, I can't imagine re-watching it now would even be that edifying so uh, we'll, we'll, we'll call time on there thank you Jack for coming on the show again oh thank you Edwin it's been a pleasure and if you've enjoyed this episode of the show then please subscribe to us on iTunes Stitcher, Play FM, all the usual places uh, write us a review and rate us it, and recommend it to your friend it's the best way for us to grow our audience you can find us on Facebook and Twitter we are at SRS underscore podcast we'll be back next week with something entirely different but until then it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me and goodbye from me, and goodbye from me.